The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Welcome to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. For today's program, I'm live in the Unity Online Radio Studio in Unity Village, Missouri. Now, because of this, I want to open with a couple of quotations from Unity's co-founder, Charles Fillmore. These were statements that he made way back in the 1920s. He said, we believe that all life is sacred and that man should not kill or be a party to the killing of animals for food. Unity opposes the use of any product that necessitates the taking of life, whether it's food substance, wearing apparel, or general utility. Oh my gosh, I read that and I feel so humbled and so honored to be here as part of Unity Online Radio, sharing this little part of the Fillmore's message as my other colleague hosts on this station uh, carry so much more of that uplifting and planet-shifting message. So what a joy to be here and a joy to have you with us. So after the break, we're going to be bringing on Dr. Kim Williams, past president of the American College of Cardiology. He's famous for having said, there are two kinds of cardiologists, the vegans and those who haven't read the data. Whoa, that's going to be fun. And we're going to be talking in just a minute to one of my very good friends. But first, I need to introduce myself to you in case you're new to our program. I'm Victoria Moran. I wrote a book called Main Street Vegan back in 2012, and all the rest of this has just happened. You can find out all that's happening at MainStreetVegan.net. Our blog post this week is... Why are you vegan? That's from Stacy Anderson, PhD, one of our Main Street Vegan Academy certified coaches. Uh, you can also find Main Street Vegan all over social media, and we have a new listeners group. It's the Main Street Vegan Podcast Listeners Group on Facebook. 
And if you happen to listen to this show on Apple Podcasts and you feel so inspired to give us a five-star ranking and a nice review, oh, goodness, that would be so, so appreciated. And I promise you right here and now that I will absolutely pay that forward. And you know what? I think I can start that right now by introducing you to our lovely first guest, novelist Camille DeAngelis. Camille is also a dedicated vegan, a Main Street Vegan certified vegan lifestyle coach and educator, and a newly graduated master vegan lifestyle coach and educator. So if you're looking for some good information or you happen to be up there in the Providence, Rhode Island area, Camille is your woman unless she's working on another book, which she always is because she is a true writer's writer. Among her many books is the critically acclaimed Bones and All. That one's about a teenage cannibal. You get a vegan message here. And then Mm -hmm. Life Without Envy. She was on the show talking about that last year. That is ego management for creative people. Her most recent book is The Boy from Tomorrow also critically acclaimed. It's supposed to be for kids about middle school age, but I absolutely loved it. And we're going to be talking about all that and more with Camille DeAngelis. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me back on, Victoria. It's such a pleasure to be here. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you on because you have such interesting, different kinds of things to say. So (laughs) one of the things you said you wanted to talk about today is how you, as a novelist, write in vegan characters. What an interesting kind of stealth activism. (laughs) Well, okay, so you and I have talked about this. Um, So The Boy From Tomorrow does have vegan characters, but it's only mentioned in passing. And I I decided that I was going to start off by being very, very subtle about it. And then in my next um, novel for middle grade readers, that I would be a little more... Um, a little more explicit. Um, but in this book, um, like I said, Alec and his mom, um, they're, they're newly vegan. Um, and it just comes up, you know, every now and again, um, when I'm mentioning the delicious things that they're eating. And you do it so well. I love this book. I mean, maybe that means that I should only be reading (laughs) middle grade novels, but it's so cool. Just give us a little bit of the story, because regardless of your age, you're going to love this book. Yes. And I think that all, you know, great children's literature speaks to us at any age, right? So um, The Boy from Tomorrow is uh, about two children living in the same, they, they sleep in the same bedroom, um, they live in the same house, um, but 100 years apart. And they meet through um, a hand-painted spirit board uh, that belongs to Josie's mother. Uh, Josie is in 1915 and Alec is in 2015. Um, and Josie's mother is a spiritualist medium. And so that's why she has the, the, the talking board um, in, her, in her home. Um, and Alec finds the, you know, antique talking board in the present day, um, and they form a friendship across time. Yeah, it's thrilling. I love it. I absolutely love it. And I like <laughs> what you're doing with the vegan thing, too, because the book is the book. The story is the story. And that's the point. 
And the fact that a couple of the characters happen to be vegan, that's exactly what's happening in the world at large. Most people mm. know a vegan or two. Yeah, it's it's just something that you might learn about someone in passing when you're hearing about all the other um, really interesting things that they're getting up to. Um, I not to not to get too far on a tangent, but um, my other project right now is um, a book uh, exploring the connection that I found between ethical veganism and creativity. And I was just saying to a friend earlier um, when I was talking about all of the different um, wonderful artists, artists of vegan artists of every stripe I've been interviewing for this book. Each interview is so different. Everyone is an ethical vegan, but everyone has their individual passions and interests and their own, you know, unique way of looking at the world. And, you know, it's just it, it's turning into this wonderful tapestry of, um, of thoughts and ideas. I think this is really important. There used to be a lot more kind of monochromatic thinking and living, I believe, among vegans. I think we were a little bit more cut from the same cloth mm -hmm. back in the 70s and 80s when I was first getting into this. In fact, I just read a book uh, recommended by one of your classmates in the most recent um, Main Street Vegan class, uh, Vicki mm -hmm. Stevens. It's called Hippie Food. And it's kind of the history basically starting in the 70s of what we now think of as health food, but also getting into some of the earlier history of, of why certain people believed that eating meat was not a good thing from a health point of view, why some people were very adamant that we shouldn't be refining the flour and we should be having whole grains and that kind of thing. And I think there was a time when most people who were vegetarian or vegan were, were pretty similar in a whole lot of ways. And now... We don't have to be similar at all, which is very mm -hmm. cool, because the only way we're going to get the whole world is if everybody's welcome. Yeah, it's it's a mainstream movement now, and that gives us, you know, much more freedom to, you know, have our individual interests and to, you know, to express our veganism in whatever way feels good to us. Yeah, yeah. And that's why you're a vegan novelist and there are mm -hmm. vegan shoemakers and there are vegan financial planners and it's just all across the board and so cool. So let's talk about your theory. You have this theory. I guess writers can have theories, not just scientists get to do mm -hmm. that. And your theory is that one's creativity is enhanced by not eating animals and eating plants. Tell us about that. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the short answer. You know the story already, but um, the short answer, you know, as to how I came up with this theory is uh, when I went vegan, I was on a reforestation project in southern India in Tamil Nadu. Um, I was on, a, you know, I was for the first time in my life, I was surrounded by vegans as a longtime vegetarian, and I was very excited to be surrounded by all of these like-minded people. Um, but I hadn't taken that that step forward, um, you know, by by um, eliminating dairy products from my diet. And after I did, you know, I had a very life changing conversation with one of the long term volunteers on this reforestation project, and I had this wonderful epiphany um, and this wonderful, uh, sh like a massive shift in my creative process. Whereas before, I had been 
experiencing these trough periods, uh, creative trough periods in between my book projects. And, you know, I felt like a charlatan. I thought, you know, I can't do this again. I was getting really down on myself, wasting a lot of energy, uh, you know, with all of the negative self-talk. Um, and then after I went vegan, I had this amazing creative explosion that has continued uh, to the present day. I haven't had a day-long trough. And those troughs used to last for a year or two. I mean, it was it was really, really frustrating. And I don't experience any of that anymore. And I thought if I reacted in this way and had this wonderful, um, you know, epiphany, creative epiphany, you know, I can share this experience with other people. And if they try it, maybe they'll experience that same uh, creative rejuvenation. So now you're researching a new book. Do you have a, a working title for that? Yes, it's called Tender Heart. Aww. And the subtitle is Veganism for Creative Growth. Love it. And you're interviewing yeah. lots of people, different kinds of artists in different fields. And what have you learned? Does your theory have uh, more foundation under it now? Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's definitely, you know, veganism definitely affects people in different ways in terms of, um, you know, their creative output and their emotional well-being. Um, and for some people, it's more um, explicit. So, you know, I, I interview several animal rights artivists. So their art is explicitly for the animals. Um, and other people are, you know, making the art that they're making. And it's it doesn't necessarily it doesn't have an, an explicit connection um, with animal rights, um, and animal rights philosophy. Um, but it might come out in subtle ways. Um, it might come out in an interview, um, you know, when they're talking about their other work and they say, this is the way that I eat, but it's also my life philosophy and here's why it benefits me. Um, so I have the whole spectrum of, you know, the hardcore animal rights activists, uh, who are also visual artists or musicians and that, or, you know, any other kind of artist. Um, and then I have the ethical vegans who aren't necessarily, um, talking about their veganism all the time. Um, but it's still a very important part of their process and of their identity. So what kinds of artists have you found? Anybody who has an unusual art? Um, I've been interviewing, you know, definitely the, you know, started off with the visual artists. Um, I have, uh, not as many writers as you would think actually, although a lot of people, you know, write, um, in order to, uh, talk about, you know, to alongside, you know, whatever their primary creative practice is. Um, I am also interviewing, um, vegan hip hop artists, which has been incredibly fun. Um, I interviewed Cynthia King, who has been on your show, um, She's a wonderful choreographer and dance teacher in Brooklyn. Um, we had a wonderful talk when I was in New York City recently. And um, yeah, just a, a couple of actors, a um, couple of other musicians. Um, people just people are just doing the most interesting things. Um, and they are, um, you know, speaking up for animals, you know, while they do it and in, in whatever, whatever form their activism might take. That's so interesting. Did you get Ivana Lynch from Harry Potter? Uh, yeah, actually, oh. I, just, I just sent her, um, I just sent her some questions. So, that is so, um, yeah, cool. so she's going to be a part of the book, too. So I'm very excited about that. And she's about to be on yeah. Dancing with the Stars, which I just think is so much fun, because all the vegans, even those who have never watched the show before can watch it and start voting for the vegan. She's actually the second vegan who's done that. Mary Lou Henner 
did it. And I, I oh, that's so cool. I think did did quite well for a time. So I, I've never been an avid viewer. My mother in law, rest her soul, that was her favorite show. But in honor of her and to celebrate Ivana, I'm going to be watching and maybe even voting if I can figure out how to do it. I'm so excited about that. So we are definitely out there in all kinds of ways. So what do people say to you? Do they say it's automatic? Like in your case, it was almost like the dairy goes, the creativity comes. Is it that direct for these other people? Um. You know, to be honest, I, I I think that my story is on the dramatic side. Um, I think a lot of people experience a shift that's much more subtle. Um, you know, physically speaking, um, there is uh, a more consistent energy level throughout the day, which is definitely a boon to creativity. Um, I personally, now this has to do with my, my former caffeine addiction. I definitely felt a um, a dip in my energy level in, in the afternoons. Um, and so, you know, as we know, a big part of this journey is about becoming more in tune with what's going on in your body. Um, and so, you know, if you're eating, you know, dairy and meat, that definitely is a factor in how you feel. Um, and then that will affect your creativity. Um, so yeah, definitely more consistent and more energy, more consistent energy, um, a sense of mental balance, um, emotional sort of evening out that happens. Um, I've also found that, um, and this is, this was true for me too, that, um, when you, um, you feel more motivated, um, because you, you're working for something that's bigger than you, you know, it's not, and, and, you know, we talked about this with, you know, with life without envy. Um, you know, if you're just looking for your own, uh, gratification, your own, you know, recognition, um, you know, in the art world, whichever, you know, part of the art world you're in, um, you're not ultimately, you're not going to make the same kind of impact that you would if you are working for someone beyond yourself. Um, you know, and in this case, um, we're talking about, you know, animals who don't have, the ability to stand up for themselves. And, um, I was actually just writing the chap, a chapter, um, yesterday I called it wallpaper girl. And it's all about this, um, about, um, you know, using your skills and your platform to make these issues visible. Um, you know, because, and I was thinking, I was, you know, talking about this, thinking about this, how, you know, when you are looking at, you know, the bacon and eggs on your plate, you, you don't see all of the suffering that goes into that quote unquote food, you know? And so, you know, I was, this is a meditation on, um, you know, making yourself more visible so that you can make the animals and their suffering more visible in the world. That is so interesting because I talk to a lot of very dedicated vegans who believe that they should not be visible, that the more invisible they are, the more spotlight space there is for the animals and for the issues. And yet, if somebody does have a gift for the world, getting that out there and bringing their veganism and their ethics along with it can be really important. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Evie Lish is a perfect example of this. You know, she is using her visibility to help untold numbers of sentient beings, um, because, you know, that when she gets on that TV show, she's going to be talking about being vegan and yeah. why, yeah. you know, 
Um, and it's amazing. Um, so I, I, I can see why someone would say, you know, don't insert yourself into the frame. Um, but that's just not where I'm coming from. I, I think it's, it's a, it's a really good thing to put yourself out there for someone else in this, in this case, you know? Yeah. Ah, oh. so yeah. Camille, talk to us about being a writer, the writer's life. How does that phrase come across to you? I, I'm sorry, Victoria, could you repeat that last question? The phrase, the writer's life, what does that yeah. mean to you? <laughs> what is it? What does it mean to me? Um, I, gosh, I just don't know who I would be without it. You know, it's become such a, um, you know, such a, an integral part of my identity. Um, I need to be observing the world around me and, um, you know, jotting down my impressions um, and, you know, becoming an ever, ever more keen observer of human nature. Um, and so, you know, the really important thing for me, a really important principle is that, you know, if I want to become a better writer, I need to become a better person. Um, and so, you know, as I become a, you know, keener observer of human nature, um, I find ways to um, become more compassionate and more kind and more steady and more gentle in myself. Um, and then that progress is reflected in my fiction. That's my, that's my, my, uh, that's the way I, I, I try to look at to look at my career. Um, and that was, you know, made more, um, more explicit in, in life without envy. That's the most, uh, until tender heart comes out, that is the most useful book I have written. I think every book is useful that takes people away. I've read that one of the reasons <laughs> that meditation is such a powerful force is that during those minutes and hours of meditation, it's as if the aging process is shut off. And when we're lifted uh, above that, but I think something like that happens whenever somebody is involved in a book or a film and all their problems, even physical pain, whatever is going on, can take a back seat to that incredible involvement in a story. And oh, I just think that's the best ever. So do you ever think, Camille, that you might write something with animals, animals as characters? That is a great question, Victoria. So I was actually just thinking about this. Uh, I was at a panel a few years ago after Bones and All came out, and um, one of the audience members stood up and because we were having a Q and A, and she said, "You know, I've written a book, a uh, middle grade novel with animal characters, and no one is interested because these editors are saying that um, it's just not." It's not a thing anymore. Animal protagonists are not a thing. They haven't been a thing in, you know, a couple of, you know, at least one generation. Um, I, of course, am thinking about all of these wonderful, wonderful books from my childhood. Um, well, they, I guess the rats of uh, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, that was not a new book when I was a kid. Um, but the movie had just come out and everyone was talking about it. And, um, that book, I actually use, um, one of the, one of the best lines in that book, um, is an epigraph in Tenderheart. Um, and you know, Robert Lawson's novels and, um, I mean, and people, people love Redwall. I've only read one Redwall, um, book, but there are so many examples of like really, really wonderful literature, um, for mostly for children, um, with animal protagonists. 
And I am not going to not write a book like that just because, you know, some editor tells me that people will not buy that book. Um, I write uh, the story that presents itself to me. Um, so I would definitely, I don't have a, I don't have an idea um, with an animal protagonist at the moment, but um, if that idea presents itself, then I will absolutely write it. It's interesting to me how popular the memes are on social media when an animal is supposed to be speaking. Certainly, Esther the Wonder Pig is the most famous for that. I mean, I think that very logical adults have to catch themselves before they say, well, Esther was just saying. I mean, we read those things, and that's what Esther is saying, and we love it so much. I don't know why. Well, I do know why. Editors tend to want to be very much on the edge, very much what's coming next. But I think sometimes, because we're all human, none of us really knows what's coming next, (laughs) and we can miss something good. So you've talked about ego management. You've talked about... Um, life without envy. But how about life without fear? When I look at you and your willingness to be a writer, you're very, very young. You're a really old soul. You don't seem (laughs) as young as you are, but you are really young. And you're in a profession that people are leaving in droves. Where do you get your courage? Well, I could I could give you the the droll answer and say that I'm just not qualified to do anything else, which might be true <laughs> in all seriousness. Um, but I I felt from childhood I've just felt a really really like irrepressible urge and drive to create. Um, you know whether that was uh, drawing or painting or um, you know making my own clothes um, and. I decided I had a I had a you know one of those you know epiphanies when I was nine and I looked on looked at my shelf uh, I had a bookshelf above my desk and I looked at this row of books and I it occurred to me that there was a human a real person behind each of those books and I decided that someday I was going to grow up and I was going to be one of them and I've that's just the way I've been that's the way I've been living ever since like it just doesn't occur to me to like there's just no way I could stop writing you know I I I've, I've always got another another idea another you know impossible story to tell <laughs> I think that is the story of the true artist that nothing can interfere lots of people are very gifted in music or art or, or whatever it is but they are told probably lots of times that's not practical. And so they get a backup and the backup becomes <laughs> the thing. Mm-hmm. And and you've just never done that. So I have so much admiration for you. So listeners, if you're not familiar with the work of Camille DeAngelis, please look her up. Her novels are fascinating. Her nonfiction book, Life Without Envy, is really insightful. And I think this new one coming up on um, vegan creativity is going to be spectacular. We'll let you know when that's happening. Camille, where do we find you on social media? Thank you so much for having me, Victoria. I love you. I love you, too. What's your social media? (laughs) Oh, oh, I'm sorry. You cut out again. That's all right. CometParty.com. Comet Party, and I'm sure there's a story behind that, and the next time you come on, you can tell it. 
Thank you so very much for being with us. And all of you, stay with us because we are going to be talking heart to heart. We just talked about the heart of creativity. Now we're going to be talking about your beautiful beating heart. Stay with us. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Unity Online Radio is bringing the message of unity to thousands of spiritual seekers around the world. If you enjoy our programming, we invite you to support it by visiting unityonlineradio.org and clicking on Donate Now. Help us continue to provide inspiring content to everyone. Thank you for your support. Here's a Unity Meditation Minute with Paulette Pipe. So as always, we begin our time of meditation by first taking account of what we're feeling those sights that we're seeing, those sensations that we're experiencing, and each breath that we breathe. Notice where in your body you're experiencing those sensations. Let your breathing find its own rhythm. As we begin the process of letting go, the process of relaxation... Remember why we're here. To hear more from Paulette Pipe and Touching the Stillness, visit the archives section at unityonlineradio.org. If you're looking to deepen your spiritual journey, Unity Magazine is your go-to source for information and inspiration. It's been beautifully redesigned and packed with interesting articles and compelling interviews from today's spiritual thought leaders. You'll find science, spirituality, and healing with a look at Eastern philosophies, meditation, as well as completely new ways to interpret the Bible. Plus, reviews on the latest spiritual books and music. Get a free trial issue at unitymagazine.org. What if you could start each day with a positive outlook, remembering you are a divine expression of God? Daily Word is a booklet of daily devotionals offering positivity that's downright contagious. With a print subscription or by email, you can pause to reflect on how to practice spirituality in your human experience. Reading Daily Word takes about a minute a day, so you can feel uplifted every morning. Visit dailyword.com to subscribe. Create a path to success and prosperity with May McCarthy and Abundance Incorporated every Thursday at 2 p.m. Central on UnityOnlineRadio.org. A co-founder of seven successful companies, an angel investor, best-selling author, and international speaker, May will help you each week with spiritual and practical tools you can use to create a life that you love with greater health, happiness, wealth, and freedom. Join the show live with your questions or listen later on demand right here on UnityOnlineRadio.org. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. 
Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Now, we do have a sponsor. I don't talk about them every week, but I do like to mention that if you are looking for a Buy Vegans for Vegans, very convenient product that will get you your vitamin B12 and D3 and EHA, DPA, omega-3 fatty acids, it's out there in a convenient spray called Complement, and it was created by Dr. Pamela Ferguson, registered dietitian, and also Matt Frazier, the no-meat athlete. If you want to learn more, go to alpineorganics.co, and if you think you want to get some, you just put Main Street Vegan in all caps in the discount box, and you will get 10% off. So to your health and all that. And on the healthy topic, I'm so honored to have on someone today that I have hoped to have on this show for several years. And today is the day. Wahoo. And he is Kim Williams, MD. He is chief of the division of cardiology at Rush University, where he specializes in cardiology, prevention, and cardiac imaging. He is the past president of the American College of Cardiology and also of the American Society of Nuclear Cardiology and chairman of the board of directors of the Association of Black Cardiologists. He is also the founder of the Urban Cardiology Initiative in Detroit to reduce ethnic heart care disparities, and he continues community-based efforts in Chicago at Rush. He's a native of Chicago's South Side and has over 30 years' experience as an educator, researcher, and physician, and some years' experience as a vegan. Welcome, Dr. Williams. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. It's absolutely my honor and pleasure. So tell us, what's your background? How did you become a plant-based cardiologist? Well, it's an interesting story that uh, gets uh, told a lot. It has a lot to do with my own personal health and being African-American, trying to uh, recognizing the burden that we have in terms of risk factors and cardiovascular um, events in the African-American population. Really wanted to do everything that I could to, that was within my control uh, to prevent that sort of thing. And it turns out that uh, I followed my blood pressure pretty carefully as it, as it was going up. I changed my diet to lower the sodium. That worked pretty well. Got it down from 140, 125. It was great. Um, then as I got a little older and I wasn't playing tennis twice a day anymore because my, I had been a professional tennis player and then became a coach of some nationally ranked players and as they were aging out, particularly my son, I was no longer playing tennis twice a day every day. And, uh, all of a sudden, my LDL cholesterol started to take off. And that um, was uh, fortunately timed at uh, a point in my life where I had had a fair amount of experience as as a nuclear cardiologist. And there was one case where I uh, was so, I was just marveling at the fact that uh, a lady had been able to reverse the majority of her scan abnormalities with her stress test simply by going on the Ornish diet. After I heard about it, I looked up the Ornish diet and realized that this could be something that would be not just good for heart disease, but for all the risk, risk factors. And so um, I quickly adopted a plant-based diet the, the moment I found out that I had an LDL cholesterol of 170, which probably wouldn't have lasted too long. Um, and uh, went vegan that day. Uh, six weeks later, my 
LDL was down to 90, and my that 125 blood pressure went down to 104, where it's been ever since. Wow, I love how quick so it is. I remember years and years ago, because really I went vegan in 1983, and they were talking about, give your cholesterol about three weeks, which, and this was the time before Lipitor, et cetera. So the idea that you could do something about your cholesterol in three weeks seemed revolutionary, and it is. Still is. Really is. So you mentioned Dr. Ornish, and I remember mm-hmm. when his work was published 30 years ago or so, and I thought, well, <laughs> we're over the diet wars. I mean, people may still want to wear leather shoes, but the food is all taken care of. But then, of course, it wasn't. <laughs> and then you were elected president of the American College of Cardiology. And then I thought, yeah, well, at least as far as heart disease, the diet wars are over. But they're not. Why not? Well, so this is the, uh, I like to quote uh, the um, 18th century philosopher Schopenhauer <laughs> frequently because he said so many uh, wonderful quips, but the one that I like the most is how all truth goes through three phases. First, it's ridiculed, then it's violently opposed, and then it's accepted as self-evident. So we are actually, I think, in the violently uh, opposed era <laughs> for plant-based nutrition. Uh, it's been a wonderful Twitter war for people who follow uh, folks on Twitter. You might look it up. And it was a lot of folks talking particularly about um, carnivor- self-proclaimed carnivorous people, really con- concerned that they could control risk factors um, by going on a ketogenic diet, even though there had been a publication or several publications um, most recently, this last weekend in Lancet, which is Lancet Public Health, who's a darn good journal, uh, saying that these are actually dangerous diets and that people shouldn't do them for very long unless they were doing a plant-based ketogenic diet. And so it, it, that was a good example of how people feel very strongly about what they eat. Um, if When I'm um, coaching people from my neighborhood on the south side of Chicago and I'm telling them about plant-based nutrition, I have to recognize that I'm attacking what their parents fed them, therefore their parents, um, their grandparents, their community, their church, um, the whole culture. Um, And the same thing would be true of, uh, I found in my Dutch community patients and the Hispanic community, food is very, very much involved in culture. And as they say, culture beats strategy all day. And so you have to uh, recognize where people are, and then try to get them to move along, and preferably with data. So Dean Ornish's work 30 years ago was really landmark, and one would think that everyone would adopt it, but um, that's what one of the things that we do as skeptics, scientific skeptics, is you know, sort of poke holes in everything. And if, <clears throat> um, if you could argue that uh, Dr. Ornish uh, gets a lot of criticism because of the completeness of his program, You'd have to turn that on its head for a moment. Um, That is, because it's not just a vegan diet, there's mindfulness meditation, there is loving environment, there's exercise, certainly smoking cessation. Um, People will criticize and say, well, how do you know it's the diet? Why, how come it isn't all the other things? <laughs> and, and so we would think that if people would get a, a program that would reverse heart disease and improve cardiac outcomes, that it would just be adopted. But in, in, instead, we naturally are skeptics, and people will sort of try to pick it apart uh, and say that, well, maybe the diet isn't necessary. I, I'm okay with having a loving environment. I don't know about the meditation. I mean, people will try to pick and choose, um, and that's, I think that's human nature. Uh, and then, in terms of, of <coughs> excuse me, in terms of cardiology, uh, it really was wonderful to see 
our American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association uh, guideline processes and uh, in, internally inside the organizations be more mindful of prevention um, because we've done so well with treatment over the last uh, 40 years. We really have come a long way. We've gotten to the point where um, cardiovascular mortality is almost number two. It's not quite there yet. Um, it is seeming to go in the opposite direction now uh, with increasing mortality due to obesity and diabetes. Um, but how did we get there? It's organizations like the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association sending out guidelines talking about when do you put on a defibrillator, when do you do bypass surgery, when do you do a stent uh, in a coronary artery, treating the disease. And like so many people, like Dr. Horners will say, tell you, that is mopping up the floor and not instead of turning off the faucet. But the floor was awfully wet, okay? And so it really needed to be mopped up. And so now we're getting to the point where um, the, the risk factors that we're dealing with in this country are so robust that all of our, you know, King's horses and King's men are not able to stop cardiovascular disease mortality from going up again. Um, so we do need to go back. We need to go upstream. We need to stop um, the, the, the real carnage of car cardiovascular disease with more and more prevention. And to that end, these organizations do have more uh, increasingly robust prevention committees, and uh, American College of Cardiology has a wonderful group of uh, nutrition-minded um, uh, uh, folks within the, new, the prevention committee. That nutrition task force, you'll see our publications all over talking about uh, what the diet controversies are, and there are plenty of them, and where the data is, is solid and where the data needs to, uh, we need to have more. So, uh, hopefully our guidelines will ref continue to reflect the best evidence, and that really does require that we do some hard-nosed, large, prospective, randomized trials. And for, so for the lay people out there, it's where you actually ask people if they would like to participate in a trial, and you assign them to two different diets. And, um, and if they agree, hopefully their, either diet would be better than the one that they're on if they're presenting with heart disease. And then you see if you can improve the outcomes. And when you, when you do so-called observational, we, that is we take a bunch of people and we, this, uh, we divide them up into those who did the diet well, those who did it a little bit, those who didn't do it at all, and look at the differences, you get a lot of information, but it'll never be accepted as that is the highest grade of evidence because it's not randomized. And they will say that when uh, Dr. Ornish published that, uh, and he's got several publications in that area, that the people who comply with the diet the most are different. Um, they probably wear seatbelts. They probably don't smoke, and when somebody's smoking around them, they get up and move. Um, and so the only way to try to, to um, get rid of all the controversies and the dietary wars is to have these prospective randomized trials start from the beginning, follow for a long time, and look for hard endpoints. Not an easy ask, um, but I think it's necessary. Mm -hmm. So I know that at least recently, Medicare and Medicaid will cover mm -hmm. people, I believe people who have had a first heart attack um, for the Ornish or the Pritikin, which is not quite as vegan-ish, but certainly in the ballpark program. Is there enough of that coming from the government or do we need more? 
So I would I would say that it's really uh, a, a, a tribute to the hard work that was put in by a lot of people to accumulate enough evidence to be convincing uh, for Medicare uh, to 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 actually invest in this. I don't consider it an expenditure. I can consider it an investment because they're actually going to decrease their downstream uh, uh, hospitalization costs and procedure costs. And so this is money well spent by Medicare uh, in prevention. And so I, I would say that uh, they've, they've done their job, but how many physicians um, are still having sudden car cardiac death themselves and in their families? We need to keep getting the message out about what a healthy lifestyle actually is and the, what the data is that's behind it and, um, and adopt it and then apply it to all of our patients. What so are I, I, I'm, I'm not sure we could blame the government for this, for this one. <laughs> so what there are plenty of other things to blame on the government. Okay. Is, uh, the subsidies, subsidies for unhealthy f food uh, substances such as high fructose corn, corn syrup. And I have to give credit to uh, uh, Oregon Democrat congressman, I believe it is, uh, Dr. Earl Blumenauer, who pointed that out to us. And we realized that, you know, we're paying for it on one end. We're trying to manage disease with Medicare, but yet we're feeding uh, the population with um, uh, foods that are highly subsidized so that it makes them less expensive to buy. Our poor people tend to eat them, and they actually, these high sugar, um, highly refined flour sort of things end up cre creating more heart disease and contributing to our, uh, our epidemic of obesity and diabetes. Now, this is very interesting when you bring up refined flour um, because I think most people say, okay, well, whole food, plant-based diet, no oil, isn't that what the cardiologists who know what they're talking about are talking about? You mean there's more? So there is more. And um, if you really are doing a whole food, plant-based diet, that gets rid of most of the things that I was talking about. You're not going to be eating, you know, a lot of uh, hydrogenated oils and uh, you're not going to be eating um, uh, refined sugar and, and, and the like. But we do have a problem in, in that many of our our vegan people are very passionate about one of several things. I'm passionate about cardiovascular mortality, and I know it's frustrating to people who ask me, well, what should I eat? My expertise is I read all the literature on what you shouldn't eat. Okay, sorry. Uh, then there are people who actually um, are passionate about uh, society and the fact that they're feeding um, animals, the grain that could be fed to humans. And then there's people who are worried about the environment and greenhouse gases. Uh, and then there are people who are concerned about animal rights and the treatment and the food production through animals. And, that, and we have many people who are, adopt a vegan diet, diet for different reasons. But if it's not focusing on that, that area of cardiac death and heart attack, stroke, peripheral artery disease, erectile dysfunction, all of the, the things that happen, uh, then it's possible to miss how important that is. And so it's a great publication in the Journal of American College of Cardiology last year that talked about healthy versus unhealthy plant-based diet. Mm -hmm. And the elements of an unhealthy plant-based diet, the refined flour, the sugar, uh, French fries, that sort of thing, actually had worse outcomes, cardiovascular outcomes, than eating animals. 
And so it's a, it's a lesson that we all need to, to uh, take to heart. So when you say whole food, plant-based diet, that gets rid of all of the bad stuff. There's no animals and there's no refined any of this stuff and all of the, um, the billions that the United States spends on uh, food production subsidies are all eliminated from yes. the diet. Well, I think when the average person is presented with a whole foods, plant-based diet, he or she is going to be most intimidated by the lack of animal products. That's just so acultural, whatever culture somebody's coming from. But I think that people who are already vegans get most hung up on the no oil aspect. And I often hear it said that it's unfair to suggest that everybody needs to be on a therapeutic diet prescribed for people with advanced heart disease. What would you say to them? I think, I think that even if you talk to the proponents like Dr. Ethelston of the no oil aspect, his, his experience is with treatment of people who have advanced heart disease. And so um, on, the, uh, on the other coast, um, I think it was John McNugal who, who liked to say the fat that you eat is the fat that you wear. <laughs> and so anyone who, has, who is overweight, who has diabetes, um, and that look, can, can look down and pinch central obesity, really should... Uh, consider the no oil aspect and and take that approach because they're going to get much faster gains. The oil itself, um, you can argue whether it's uh, really vasculotoxic, uh, meaning that um, the the arteries and the blood vessels do not do well when there's ingested oil, um, and that has been going around a, a bit. But in terms of risk factors. We know that the worst thing that you can get is trans fats. Unfortunately, that's been been banned in parts of New York, parts of California, Denmark, a wide variety of places have got, tried to get rid of trans fats. But saturated fat, which is pr- pretty much the fat that's in animal products, it also ruins cholesterol. And you, you're seeing it making a comeback because um, there are good articles, very well done articles, saying that, um, that that kind of fat in animal protein is better than carbohydrates. And that is absolutely true if you're talking about refined carbohydrates. Um, so, but make, making a comeback as an absolute, uh, probably not. And if you if you replace saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat or monounsaturated fat, you'll see a decrease in heart, heart attacks and you decrease in, uh, in cholesterol. And some people would argue that you actually do get a little less weight because there are smaller chains uh, to the fatty acids, but gram for gram, it's still um, a, a high amount of calories, uh, uh, regardless of what kind of oil you're, you're taking in. Well, I think you so just... I would say, Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I think I you just if you if you have the weight issue, you really should stay away from the oils. So I believe you have answered my next question because just a few weeks ago there was a lot in the popular press about someone who'd <clears throat> come out about coconut oil being exceedingly dangerous, which to me as an old time yeah. vegan was not surprising at all because we were always told mm-hmm. back in the day vegans do well with heart disease, and this is before Ornish or before Dr. Esselstyn or any of that because you're not getting saturated fat from animal products and tropical oils. But, you know, who eats those? Because then we didn't. But now we do. So for somebody who's just a vegan, not going to do oil-free, is coconut oil worse than olive oil, macadamia nut oil, whatever else they're looking at using? So I, I, I understand where the controversy is, and I can sort of set it up for you. I'm not sure that I can answer it because I, I really don't have a lot of opinions. I just read the literature. And the literature on coconut oil is really all over the place. That is, and in fact, the most, the, the most um, wise and considered 
position was the American Heart Association's uh, uh, saturated fat um, uh, advisory that came out, I think, May of 2017. People can Google it, read the entire document if you want. And they made an opinion that uh, coconut oil should be avoided because of how saturated fat is, has uh, reacted and is associated with heart disease um, in, in all of its other forms, and therefore we should be afraid of it. And that, but they say very clearly that, that in the absence of large randomized trials, this is an opinion of experts, yeah, as opposed to most of the rest of the document, which was actually just hard data. Now, you, you could make the case that when you're doing coconut oil, um, that it is a vegetable product. There is no heme iron. There is no cholesterol. There is um, no generation of TMAO. I mean, all of these new things that have come out in the last two years uh, that are reasons not to eat animal products, and those are really solid reasons when you're eating animals that have saturated fat. Sure, you can add up how much saturated fat there is, but you're also getting all those other things. Um, and if it's processed, then you add the nitrates and the nitrites to the concern. And so all of this, um, it becomes very difficult to dissect out uh, because most people will not just take, you know, um, a big chunk of saturated fat or trans fats and uh, just eat that. Uh, some, people, some people like to do that, but uh, most of us don't. And so to isolate one element and say, you know, it, it is the, you know, this particular uh, uh, Steric acid, for example, as a saturated fat, I mean, to say that this is the thing that's causing a, uh, all of our cardiovascular disease is very difficult because it probably is an amalgam, a, comp a compilation of, of loads of different kinds of things um, that go into um, making plants better than animals for you. Mm. So it's tough to answer uh, the, the coconuts. I, I know that there are people on both sides of it, uh, probably the Yale group, the Yale Nutrition group, saying, nope, it's a vegetable oil, it's going to be fine. Um, it would be nice to see a, uh, a, a good randomized trial. I, I love how the scientists are always waiting for the randomized trial. <laughs> you're, you're very patient. That's right. So um, what about exercise? Where does that play mm -hmm. in according to the science? So it's interesting that um, until a few weeks ago, I would have said that, you know, if, if I had to rank them uh, in terms of what I'm getting as a clinician, in terms of the effect of exercise versus the effect of diet versus statins versus the new PCSK9 inhibitors, $14,000 drug for injection, if we're talking just about cholesterol, um, I would say that, that the drugs are really great um, if you need them. The diet is fantastic, um, and they're very similar. That is a high dose of a statin, probably get you about 50% reduction in your LDL. You could get a 50% reduction uh, with diet uh, if you had a, a terrible diet and you went to no cholesterol whatsoever and no saturated fat uh, or very little. Um, but exercise, you'd probably get a, maybe a 10% or 15% reduction in, in your LDL cholesterol. And more importantly, it raises the good cholesterol, uh, and then a few weeks ago, we found out from uh, yet another large epidemiologic trial that high levels of a good cholesterol are actually not good for you, and actually um, that's probably not something that we should keep focusing on. Um, but let's get away from just the cholesterol issue with exercise. If you talk about its effect on uh, weight so that people are, have a good energy balance between what they're taking in and what they're burning, 
That's where the, the benefit of exercise really comes. That is, developing muscle instead of fat uh, improves your metabolism, if, particularly for blood sugar. Um, and if you can get rid of the central obesity, that drops your insulin levels. Insulin is atherogenic, meaning that the more insulin you have in your in your body, that is, whether it's a, you know, eat, eating a candy bar, uh, or a glazed donut, or um, you know, a big uh, a, a big meal where you're not exercising um, and you are trying to feed a lot of fat cells, you end up with um, more insulin resistance, which then raises the insulin levels even more, and insulin makes plaque. Mm, so, so health I, I is health. I love the connections. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say that exercise is important, uh, and you have to look at the whole picture. Its effect on uh, hypertension is excellent. Not that's about half of what you would get if you did a good vegan diet uh, or a DASH diet. It was, and the effect on weight can be really dramatic, particularly if people lose fat and gain muscle. Uh, so it, it sort of it covers almost all of the risk factors. Not going to fix your uh, you know, your family history or stop you from being African-American and male, but it can actually uh, do a good job of handling the modifiable risk factors. Wonderful. Well, I could listen to you forever, and thank goodness I get to listen to you again soon because you're going to be speaking at the second annual Cardiac Wellness Conference at Montefiore Health Center in Bronx, New York on October 6th. This is an incredible conference. It was so great last year that I'm going this year, even though I have to leave early and get an Uber to Newark (laughs) to go speak in Michigan the next day. So tell us what your topic is and what we're going to learn there really quick. We've got a minute. Well, you might have uh, heard already that pretty much all I talk about is uh, how not to to, uh, have a heart attack, stroke, and death, Uh, all the data that's been accumulated about cardiovascular events and nutrition. And so I'll be going through all of the the biochemistry of what makes it happen, and hopefully uh, everyone will recognize that these are are modifiable things that we can, uh, sometimes you can actually measure them, um, and we can avoid them. And let's uh, let's do the best we can to to not die of heart disease. You know, uh, I know we've got to go, but I always like to say that the, the reason to do this is to try to help our Medicare system because it's going to go bankrupt in a few years, and uh, it's our job as good Americans to keep ourselves healthy so that our children have something left uh, out of that system. Well, God bless you for saying that because I think being healthy is something that we all need to do for ourselves and those who love us and everybody else too. So bravo. I look forward to hearing you in October. I'll put the information about that conference on the show notes as well as information for both of our guests where you can find them online. Thanks to Unity Online Radio. Thanks to you for listening. God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw, and on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.